0: Hi, this is John, by the way, and today I'm looking at Galatians chapters 1 through 6. Just a few little notes to enhance your study of these chapters in your Come Follow Me curriculum at church and at home. When I first saw Galatians, my mind's kind of weird. I thought earlier this year I went to Alaska and I stood on a glacier, the Mendenhall Glacier, and so I guess I am a Galatian. Uh, sorry for the dad joke. But anyway, chapters 1 through 6 highlight the same problem that Paul has been having before, and that is that some felt like Gentile converts needed to do Jewish things, needed to be circumcised before they could become Christians. Do you have to be a Jew before you become a Christian? The same type of challenges. There are many Jewish converts to Christianity. What about the Gentile converts to Christianity? That Do they need to do things as part of the law of Moses? Or is that over now? So the same complications are coming up again. If we go all the way back, or if we start in Galatians chapter 1, we have verse 8. Though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. So what's happening? People are coming in and saying, no, it needs to be like this. And someone else says, no, it needs to be like this. Now, I wanted to talk about this verse because our critics of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints sometimes use this verse in their anti-literature to say that, oh, Angel Moroni preached a different gospel or something like that. They don't talk about the fact that Jesus himself appeared, the Father and the Son, to Joseph Smith. Also, think about this, an angel from heaven. I I like the comment that Dr. Robert L. Millett made in his new book about Paul's epistles called Becoming New. This is on page 182. Those who had begun to lead away the stumbling saints were known as the Judaizers, agitators, or troublemakers. In fact, the Greek word translated here as trouble means literally to shake back and forth, or as we might say, to agitate and stir up problems. The word "troubles" used in verse, in verse seven, the Judaizers were actually attempting to persuade these Jewish Christians to hold on to many, if not most, of the tenets and practices of the Law of Moses, and all of this is terribly upsetting, even demoralizing to the Apostle Paul. Issues this warning, and then here's verse eight. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Paul's warning, continued Dr. Millet, not to even take counsel from an angel of God if the angel preaches anything different from what Paul has taught, is, of course, hyperbolic and overstatement. Clearly, an angel sent from the presence of God would never preach anything different from what God has revealed to his apostles and prophets. The Almighty would not work against himself. The important point Paul is making here is that if any mortal should put forward some doctrine or practice that is at odds with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is to be absolutely ignored and shunned. So, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news. Jesus came, suffered and died for our sins, and did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That is the good news which Paul continues to talk about here. Going on to verse 12, Paul says, I neither received it, this testimony of Christ of men, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Where did this gospel come from? Well, it came from Jesus Christ. And I just put in my margin, Matthew 16, a reference to the whole story of Jesus asking the apostles at Caesarea Philippi, whom do men say that I am? Some say that you're John the Baptist, or Elias, or one of the prophets, whom say ye that I am. And Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus' answer to Peter is, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. It came from Revelation. And if anyone has a testimony of Christ that's alive today in our day, where would they get it? Well, it would have to come by, by Revelation So, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It says in the book of Revelation, I think that's chapter 19, verse 10. So, anybody who has a testimony of Christ got it by revelation. That's that's how they come. Okay, continuing. In chapter 2, there's this... Paul kind of calls out Peter for separating himself from a group of Jews that were eating. So, when you go down to verse 11... But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that, certain came from James. He did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he, Peter, withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. So, I have a comment in Ogden and Skinner's commentary, verse by verse, Acts through Revelation. And he he quotes... Richard Lloyd Anderson, from his uh, wonderful book, Understanding Paul. And this is what he said. No doubt Peter had his side of the story. Fear may not have been his motive, and Paul may have acted prematurely. Paul admits that the mission of the pillars was to the Jews. If intense Jewish converts reacted negatively to the Jerusalem Council decision, James and Peter may have sought a transition delay to convince the stubborn. If Peter labored to bring this about, Paul may have pushed conformity to the council's ruling ahead of its time. Paul evidently retold the story because the Judaizers used the episode to give the impression that Peter agreed with them. And then in italics, for emphasis, it says, The incident is instructive of showing two strong leaders agreeing on a principle that came by revelation, but applying the principle with different timing. Paul does not say that Peter permanently separated himself from the Gentiles. These candid examples show how Revelation came after deep searching. Paul reviewed these examples, of course, to show that church leaders stood with him in teaching salvation through the revealed gospel, not through the Mosaic Law. So that's page 158 in Richard Lloyd Anderson's book, Understanding Paul. So yeah, there's probably another side of the story. It may have been they were applying what they knew, but applying it differently. One didn't like the timing of the other, perhaps. So that that works for me. Okay, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Okay, what do we... You have to separate literal from figurative sometimes. I am crucified with Christ. In fact... All of us kind of die when we are baptized. I put in my margin Romans 6.4. We are buried with him by baptism unto death. We always talk about born again, but we don't talk about what would be required to be born again is to die again <laughs> or to die first. So maybe that baptism is symbolic of putting the old man away, like Romans 6.4 says, and being born again. We are buried with him by baptism unto death, our old Natural man or natural woman dies, and then we come out of the water, we're born again, and we become, as Paul says, new creatures. Okay, a couple of fun things from Galatians chapter 3. I just think it's fascinating that Paul brings up Abraham and the promises to the children of Abraham. Abraham didn't have the law of Moses. And yet, here's these promises that Abraham's seed would be heirs. I'm looking at, you know, verse 17, for example. This law, and this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law, it was added because of transgressions. So, a little hard to understand, but Abraham was promised all this posterity that would be saved with him before the law of Moses was even given. So, why did the law of Moses come about? The very strict law of Moses. It was added because of transgressions. Verse 19, go down to verse 24. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. I love that description. I use it. In the, my test questions in my Book of Mormon classes, in the Book of Mormon, they were practicing the law of Moses as best they could. But in the Book of Mormon, it appears they didn't add so many of the traditions of the elders that we read about in the Bible. So what extent they were practicing the law of Moses in the Book of Mormon, we don't know exactly. But it was a schoolmaster to bring them to Christ. But it would, it would come to an end. So often when we speak of being saved by grace or works of the law we have some critics who think anything that is a work anything you have to do is is contrary to the gospel but i think and these scholars i'm reading think when they talk about works of the law they're talking about the law of moses the 613 commandments because we're still supposed to be baptized the great commission given to the apostles going to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature baptizing them So, there's still things we're supposed to do, and Paul himself is going to talk about going about doing good. Let's go to verse, let's go to chapter 6 really quick. If a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. (laughs) That's a great verse. Just reminds me, now I know that man is nothing. Which thing I never had supposed. That Moses says, Uh, never think of yourself too great. Uh, We've all got problems, we've all got sins, we've all got issues. Um, Some of the closing parts of Galatians chapter 6 are so good. Verse 7, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. It's a law that's like mathematical, you know. Works every time. You, You sow figs, you'll get figs. You sow tomatoes, you get tomatoes. You sow cucumbers, you get cucumbers. Um, Whatsoever you sow, that shall you also reap. Every choice has a consequence. Every action has a reaction. That sort of thing. Verse 9. Let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap. If we faint not. That's a phrase that comes up in the Doctrine and Covenants. Section 64. You're laying the foundation of a great work. And then verse 10 of Galatians 6. We have therefore opportunity, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Well, we all know the the Wentworth letter, a newspaper called the Chicago Democrat, asking the prophet Joseph Smith to outline the beliefs of the church, and he said, you got to print everything right, and he, he wrote this Wentworth letter just before the Articles of Faith is that stirring paragraph, the standard of truth has been erected, no one hallowed hand can stop the work from progressing. You know, that beautiful paragraph. And then the 13 statements, this Article of Faith. My understanding is it was never actually published, but the letter is now part of the, the canon of the Pearl of Great Price, the, the Article of the Faith anyway. Article of Faith 13, I, I wrote... AF 13 next to Galatians 6.10, which begins, We believe in being honest, true, chaste, benevolent, virtuous, and in doing good to all men. My dad used to say we believe in being honest, true, chaste by an elephant, but I don't think that's what it means. Honest, true, chaste, benevolent, virtuous, and in doing good to all men. So there's that phrase. The admonition of Paul actually comes from Philippians, which we'll be talking about a couple of lessons in the future. But this idea of doing good unto all men also reminds us of what it says about Jesus. And is it Acts chapter 10? He went about doing good. And that's something every day we can think back to that song that President Monson used to emphasize. Have I done any good in the world today? Have I helped anyone in need. Have I cheered up the sad or made someone feel glad? If not, I have failed. There's always a way to find a way to lift or encourage somebody, and it's never been easier. You can send a text message and do that sort. Okay, verse 15 of Galatians 6. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. I can't overemphasize how much I love that phrase, because the new creature is, is not just a slightly better guy or a slightly better girl. You know, we're, we're trying to be a new creature. I remember hearing so often the idea that the church makes bad men good and good men better. But I think it was uh, Dr. Robert Millet that I heard say, no, it's so much more than that. It's not just, and those things do happen, and they're great. But it's not just making bad men good, good men better. It can make us new creatures, and a new creature would have little resemblance to the old creature. So, a new creation. I just love that. Verse 17, Galatians 6, From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Now, what does he mean by that? Ogden and Skinner say, marks is the English word used here to translate the the Greek stigmata. These marks are not marks of shame but marks of faithfulness. Paul indeed had marks on his body, physical marks testifying of his undying efforts in behalf of the saints. At Antioch of Pisidia, he was forcibly expelled, and at Lystra, he was stoned and left for dead. So Paul received persecution in many different places where he went, and I think that's probably what he meant. I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has endured persecution. And when we think of some of the best examples and finest people in the scriptures, they did not have easy lives. They endured persecution, and we might expect to endure the same. That's a, a tough test. I hope we can, we can all pass. Okay, those are some, some things I love about the book of Galatians, and we will talk to you next time about Ephesians.